0: I'm turning to the book of John, the Gospel of John, as we consider in this very powerful and potent chapter, the sixth chapter of John, uh, not only our text for this morning, but some of the, the beauty of what God has done for us in grace. It is with that intention that I hope that we can see that glorious city that God has prepared for us by His grace, and He will take us there by His grace, and that He will complete what He has done by His grace. He has started it with grace. He continues it with grace. He will complete it with grace. And oh, how I hope that we can appreciate and understand more this morning is grace. It's a difficult concept for us fallen creatures to appreciate and to understand, to be receptors of his grace. Getting at verse 37 through verse 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, For this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but shall raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Our gracious Father, we pray you would open up our minds and our hearts to your grace today, that we would praise the glory of your grace, that we would all the more be humbled with this wonderful, tremendous gift. And we pray that our thanksgiving and praise would redound into your glory more and more as we contemplate the beauties of the gospel. And we pray that you were, your spirit would work these truths into our lives and, and weave them into the fabric of. Our soul, that this would be a part of us as we consider our great God in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that rests upon us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I remember the first time I turned completely around in my like for my most hated vegetable, Brussels sprouts. We were in Florida at a little tapas restaurant and was not very excited about one of those dishes that someone in my family ordered, but was so delighted after I had tried it uh, again that it was absolutely delicious, and I've never turned back from Brussels sprouts since that time. I remember an epiphany moment much like that, but even probably more profound when I turned to like pizza. So around the age of 10, and by that time, all the way for the first 10 years of my life, I never tried pizza. I had never tried it because it had cheese on it. And I didn't like cheese, or so I thought. I was in underground Atlanta with my family. I think it was one of our dentist visits there, and the... We went to underground Atlanta, and the food choices were were pretty narrow, the crowds were large, but there was this pizza place that we went in and sat down with my family, and I was very hungry, so I had limited options that day, and pizza was the only option I had, so I remember that I had the first bite of pizza in the first 10 years of my life, and I remember that epiphany moment. Whoa, what has been wrong with me for so long? (laughs) Where has pizza been all my life? Uh, No one had ever coerced me into eating Brussels sprouts or pizza since those turnaround moments in my life. A few weeks ago, we began a short study on the gospel, and we began our study considering man's depravity. The total depravity is a scriptural doctrine that teaches that since the fall of man, all of man's faculties are depraved, as I'm sure now you agree that mine are, once you heard how I thought about cheese for ten years of my life. But man's constitution, when we think of what man is made up of, he's made up of basically two elements, for the lack of a better word. That's a non-technical approach to this matter. First of all, he is made up of dirt. God took the dust of the ground and he formed it into a man. And so we are made from dirt. God did not create us in much of the way he did other creation, ex uh, nihilo, out of nothing. He actually took some substance of a dirt and he created us because there was a purpose. And from that dirt, we have our creatureliness. We have our identity, identity with the soil and the earth, and this agrarian aspect that we have as a part of the very fiber in which we all are constructed. And from that dirt, we have the body that then functions in that way. But until God breathed into. Man that second aspect of man's constitution the breath of life man just sat there as a as a lifeless piece of pottery but that second aspect when god did breathe into the man his to his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature That spirit of God, that part that communes with its creator is that which makes up with the body and the spirit within man, the composite of what makes a human in the image of God. God had promised man, if man ever disobeyed him by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that in that day that he disobeyed him, he shall surely die. Now, people have actually questioned the Bible on this particular notion because they said, aha, man did not physically die there. And we have such a limited understanding of death because the physical man did not die right away. And that illustrates the very point that our understanding of death is very little. And we're not very knowledgeable on the topic at all. Death had two aspects, just like man's constitution. The first aspect of death that man experienced immediately upon eating of that tree of knowledge and good and evil and disobeying God, was a spiritual death. The Spirit of God was no longer in his life as it was before. And man understood immediately that something was wrong in him. He wasn't the same as he was before. Something had drastically changed. He was afraid of God as well he should be. The sweet fellowship with God that He had had in walking in the cool of the garden of the day was now destroyed. Harmony with His Creator was now in tension and there was, He was no longer the same person that He was before. He was not the same human that He was before. Something inside of Him made Him less human than what God had originally made Him. The second aspect of which we tend to think of of death, and most often uh, the world thinks it exclusively in that realm, is that physical part of death. The seed of death, when man fell in the garden and that spiritual death took place immediately, but the seed of that physical death immediately was sown and man's body began to decay from that time until he finally returned from the dust from which he was created. The spiritual death in man greatly distorted the image of God in man. It did not completely erase it, but it star- scarred and marred it and distorted it into a place that he was something less of a human than what God had originally made him. And now that the Spirit of God has departed, there was no longer an interpreter inside of man that clearly showed him right and wrong. He lost the original knowledge and original holiness and original righteousness in which God had made. The discernment now in man was greatly distorted. There was no longer the same attraction for God Himself. There was no genuine interest in our Creator as the one to love. Truth was now very vague. Goodness was skewed. And chaos reigned in the heart and mind of man. The image of God was not completely erased. But it was so distorted that all of man's faculties were just out of whack. So he continued to have and he used his mental faculties, but not for the right end. And man's distorted view of goodness led him to seek what man wanted more for himself really than the ultimate good in God. Because he had still retained the image of God, man could do tremendous things. He could accomplish much, and it is only due to the image of God that sets him apart from uh, the, the animal world in a way that man has imagination and creativity and he has uh, mental faculties and a volition and he has these capacities that he can create after the image that God created. Man is a creator. He even has a religious aspect in his heart. An eternal longing and... Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, Kohalath, would say that God has set the world in their hearts. That, is, that word world is eternity. God has put an eternity in the heart of every person. So man still has a will and he has emotions, but they are greatly distorted and confused and set on all the wrong things. And this is the nature of that fallen man. That is our nature. The fallen man is simply not the human he should be or that he was. He didn't like cheese or pizza of the way he Thought about it or felt on it about it. So he never ordered any. Fallen man has a view of himself and the world that is distorted and, and it's not according to beauty and truth and goodness. We do not see ourselves accurately. And that is why God has to spell these things out in black and white in the Bible. We don't understand the things like we should. We are obstinate. We are dull. We think we know more than we really do. Fallen man suppresses the truth of God. He's not thankful to its Creator. He does not love God. In all of his God-given faculties, they have been now so corrupted in man's own rebellion and disobedience, now he turns all of those faculties against God. And the Bible says we are at enmity against God in our minds and by our works. And this is the nature we all have. That's the tension that exists. The image of God And yet, distorted in such a fallen way that it turns all of the goodness that God has created us in against God to the promotion of self. There's a tension in this. An image of God which is of great value and it demands from us respect in every person no matter how fallen they are. Hence the reason which the sixth commandment was iterated, that we cannot take life innocently from other life because man is made in the image of God. And that image still is, is retained, although as scarred as it is. And what is intentioned with us is this value that we have the image of God and that which demands our respect. But we do not see God in the right manner according to the beauty, truth, and goodness. So distorted that all of our faculties are totally depraved. And if God did not make clear that we are so corrupt and so fallen that we are at enmity with Him, we simply would not believe it. In fact, we have a hard time, even as evangelical Christians and Bible-believing Christians, having a hard time believing how absolutely corrupt we truly are. If God had not informed us that we do not love Him, We would not believe that, and most people still disagree with that statement. Most evangelical Christians would not agree with that statement. If God had not told us that we were at war with Him, at enmity with Him, that we hated Him, If God had not informed us that we are not good, we would not know this truth because we by default according to our fallen condition believe that man is inherently good. But the Bible says there is none good, no not righteous, no not one. If the Bible did not tell us that we do not even seek after God, we would not believe that. And so many churches have seeker-friendly congregations and churches and worship services to address those who are seeking God but there is not a single one who even seeks him the psalms say that and paul quotes the psalms in romans 3:11 that specifically says there's none that understands there's none that even seeks after god we have to understand the bible If the Bible did not inform us that even the faculties like faith and good works and a free will to do what is right are impossible apart from His grace, we would not know, we would not understand the fact, and we would much less believe it. We would not believe it. That's why we're taking some time to try to get the gospel right. So the first prerequisite to understanding the gospel is to understand what God says in his word about the gospel and what God says in his word about God and what God says in his word about man. And that's the main problem with the gospel today. Many people simply do not know nor understand and therefore they do not believe the gospel truth because it is of their opinion which is up against God's truth. And the natural fallen man will always side with his opinion or his interpretation of life every single time. That's the default. That's how we were born. Believe it or not, is irrelevant to the truth of the matter, because that's what God's word says. So the first place we all have to start is to understand what our Bible says about man and accept it as God's holy word. Let it inform us. And as we understand the gospel, we will increasingly see that it is the work of God and not man. It is He that began the good work in us who will complete it. It was Christ that sought us and chose us. It is not we that sought and chose Him. It was God who was seeking to save worshipers who would worship Him in spirit and truth. It was not because we were seeking to do that first. It was not that we loved God first, but that God loved us first, and only then can we reciprocate that love to Him. It is only because of grace that we are saved and we are who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only because of grace that we can believe in our Savior. It is only because of grace, quite in spite of you, as we read from Ezekiel 36, that God has done what He has done for His great name's sake. And how thankful we are to be recipients of that wonderful free gift of God's sovereign grace. It is of God's sovereign free grace, which is a quality in God that we genuinely know so little about. And this morning I want us to consider this irresistible nature of God's grace. And the doctrine of irresistible grace is the Bible's teaching that God is sovereign over salvation, and the Holy Spirit can overcome all of the resistance and all of the obstacles when he wills to do so. I want to start off in this by by highlighting three negatives, and then I'll finish it with three positives as we consider this tremendous doctrine of God's irresistible grace. Three negatives. First of all, God's grace and sovereign will cannot be obstructed by the free will of man. This is often the battle that takes place in modern circles and theological arguments today. But God's grace and His sovereign will cannot be obstructed by the free will of man. Those who hold this position that the free will of man can obstruct God's grace and keep man from being saved believes that the free will of man is capable of rejecting the sovereign will of God who wants all men to be saved according to their perspective. You see how that works? There's a presupposition that they believe, according to opinion, not the word, that God desires the salvation of every single person. He desires this. This is what God's will is. But it, he left it up to the overtrumping will of man in order for man to overrule and obstruct the very sovereign will of God. That would be according to that perspective. That's not the Bible truth, by the way. It's far from it. Now, there are some passages in the book, in the the Bible, which like in Acts 7, 51, when Stephen was speaking and preaching to the Jewish leaders, and he tells them, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Now, if that kind of preaching isn't going to get anybody in trouble, I don't know what will. But Paul even speaks about this quenching of the Spirit, the grieving of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament is one of this protracted story of resistance, just like we read. So we do not deny that man can resist the Holy Spirit, but we do not agree that man's free will can obstruct the sovereign will of God. See, what's at stake here is, is whose will is really that which is to be done. God's will or man's will? Because those are the two things that are in tension. When God wants to save an individual, God will overcome all of the obstacles of resistance when He wills to do so. Spurgeon was preaching from this very passage on one evening in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and his text was just that phrase of verse 37, and the Father himself who sent me, um, oops, I'm reading the wrong chapter, verse there. He says, all that the Father hath given me will come to me, all that the Father hath given to me will come to me. And he looks around and he points up into the balcony and he says, you don't think you're going to come, but if it's the will of the Father and it's given to the Son, you will come. You will come. You will come. You can sit there as obstinate in your seat and as strong in your spirit as you can, but if it's the will of the Father, you will not be able to resist that grace and you will come. Folks, if you really understand that perspective, what a tremendous comfort that knowledge is when we were that obstinate that God is able and willing in His love to overcome all of those obstacles of our hatred toward Him. What is ultimately at stake in this position is putting the free will of man over against the free will of God. Is there free will? Absolutely, God has free will. Absolutely, God can will whatever He desires and He will accomplish all of His holy will. And God desires and wills that some men will be saved. And so He takes care of removing all of those obstacles that would stand in the way. In fact, that's what Psalm 110 says. Your people shall... Be willing in the day of his power. Interesting, Psalm 110 is speaking of the father, speaking to the son in the hearing of David the king. And David is hearing this eternal conversation how Yahweh says unto David's Lord, Yahweh has said to Adonai, sit thou here until I make all of your enemies your footstool. He promises that he will make him a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Father is telling the Son that He will make His people willing in the day of His reign and power. So God's grace and sovereign will cannot be obstructed by the free will of man. The second negative I'd like to mention here is this, man is utterly unable to come to Christ without the Father drawing him to Jesus. Man is utterly unable to come to Jesus without the Father drawing him. The passage this morning clearly says that those that come to Christ are those that the Father has given to the Son, and the Son will in no wise cast out. But it says that very clearly that all that the Father has given to the Son will come. They will come. It is only those that the Father has given to the Son that will come. It is only the sheep who hear the shepherd's voice, the true sheep. And those specific ones whom he has known and chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world will certainly come. They will come. But others will not come simply because they have no desire to come. In fact, in the same chapter, if you look down in chapter 6, verse 44, it says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. He reiterates that again in verse 65, and he says, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given to him, except it were graced to him, except the gift of this, were given to him of my Father. Both of those verses emphasize a lack of ability to come to Christ, which is inherent in the natural fallen spirit and nature of man. But that lack of ability to choose actually stems from a lack of desire in the first place. Why choose pizza when it's got all of that nasty cheese covering it, if that's the way you think about it? Before man is even able to come to Christ, God must do a work in man's heart to overcome all the obstacles that keeps him away. So man is utterly unable to come to Christ unless the Father draw him and remove those obstacles. A third negative is, when God overcomes all the obstacles of resistance and depraved, fallen man to save him, it does not mean that man is forcefully coerced against his will. That's not what it means at all. God does not act forcefully against man's spirit to get man to do something he didn't want to do. In fact, when God removes the obstacles... Man freely chooses Christ. So let me, with those three negatives, address three positives of what God does for us with His grace. The first thing I'd like to highlight is the work of God in overcoming all resistance in your spirit against Him is grace. Grace is something that is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is a gift that He gives to you. And the work that God does in overcoming all of the depravity and overcoming all of that obstacle of resistance against Him is a grace. It's a gift. It's a gift of love. It's a gift of goodness. And that's why in John 6.65, He says, Therefore I say unto you that no man can come to Me except it was given unto Him by my Father. If we understand our total depravity, then it's not hard to understand that God must do a work first in us for us to come to Christ. The Scripture is clear that we do not have the will. We do not have the faith. We do not have the genuine desire to come to Christ without God taking the initiative in our lives to first do something to remove all of that obstacle created in our depravity and our disobedience when we fell. See, we were something less of a a human that God made us to be. But what the Father does... With the Holy Spirit is a tremendous power and it's a tremendous gift. The Father draws those whom He is giving to the Son through the operation of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. He draws to the Son through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit those that are His. And this is a grace. It's a grace that overcomes obstacles, even the stubborn obstacle resistance of man's unable will. Because nothing of grace is deserved or merited. It is God that first must work in our hearts. When we don't even have the faculties to even look His direction for the gift or for the grace, God has to do something first. Once again, if we can just begin to grasp this concept of grace, we will begin to understand how much God has done for us. How much He loves us. How much quite in spite of who we are that God has created us and made us and even when we rebelled against Him, He loved us still. And he desires to have a relationship personally with those that he loves and with his sheep. It's going to have applications in every part of our daily life. It's a a daily gift. Every time I get on my knees and pray, it's because it's a gift that has been given to me to be able to do that. And for him to hear my voice. The joy of life and the peace that I have and the future for which I am not concerned is all a gift that God has given me from start to finish. I did not do a single thing from my fallen human nature to merit God's approval. Or to get Him to do something for me. Or to bind Him to something that I willed. Everything that God did to overcome our stubborn and obstinate spirit against Him was a powerful act of grace. And He continues to be gracious to His people. There's lots of application just in that one point right there. But you can take that application... And you can apply it to your neighbor who's in Christ. You know, the one that you complain about, the one you fuss about, or the one that you're not happy with. But if God has begun a good work in your neighbor, He will complete it into the day of redemption. We need to be thinking about each other in these gracious terms that God has been gracious to you. The second positive here that I'd like to to bring out is this doctrine of regeneration, because regeneration is the gift of grace in changing us so that we are willing to come to Jesus. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit breathing into us life. It's a creational work of God. That's why when we reflect upon the creation that God has done, it's always inseparable to the redemption of that creation after it has fallen in a very similar act, in a very similar way of what God did at creation when He took a form of a body and man from the dust and He breathed into him the breath, and the word breath there, the breath of life. In Genesis 2-7 is the word spirit of life. At the moment that the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we are given new life. We have been made a new Creation. The word regenerate means to recreate. And that is what God has done for us in the Holy Spirit. We must remember that we were dead in trespass and sin. We were dead. Until the Spirit of God comes in and He breathes into us the breath of life and we are regenerated. And we become something new and something changes on the inside. And we now are being restored into a different kind of humanity. A true humanity. And that is why when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Being born again is this very concept of regeneration Because we need to have a new birth. This is what Ezekiel was talking about in chapter 36 when God says He'll sprinkle you with clean water. He'll put a different kind of heart in you than the one that you have now so that you will come in the day of His power. Faith is itself a grace and the fruit of the life that the Holy Spirit gives and not a means to obtain it. It's important for me to say that again. Faith is not a means to obtain the regenerating life of the Holy Spirit, but rather it is a result of it. And see, that changes everything around to make the gospel God-centered and not man-centered. Regeneration precedes faith and not the other way around. The Holy Spirit first regenerates us so that we might believe. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and faith is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Analogous to that lifeless form of the dust before the Spirit breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life, so we as spiritually dead people, we need the Spirit of God to come and breathe life into us in order for us to rise up and trust Christ. This is the doctrine of regeneration. And when He does that work in us, we're quite passive in its operation. That's why when we're being baptized, which is a picture on the one hand of this regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, the recipient of baptism is passive. But when God is finished, we become lively creatures and are quite active in our new life. Because it's life! We're no longer dead. And the third third positive that I would like to bring in our final point here is with the new birth and regeneration, grace becomes so irresistible that we necessarily come to Christ. We necessarily come to Christ. When those obstacles are taken away, how can we but not come? When the Spirit of God is indwelling a believer and He changes him from the inside out and the Spirit is in here longing for God. The eternity that God has created in the heart of man now finds its fulfillment and our changed faculties are longing in an irresistible way so that we come to Christ so willingly, so delightful, so joyfully those that the Father has given to the Son will come. And this is how God makes us willing in the day of His power without coercing us, without forcing us against our spirit, without making us do something that we don't want to do. There's not a single person ever saved that came against His will. If he ever thinks he did, he is greatly deceived and he needs to be born again. See what God does is he changes our disposition. In that new birth we we now find that we are a, a new human. We are of a new creature. We are of a new creation. We are of the new creation. We are part of the new heavens and the new earth. And so our disposition is so changed that we come to Christ, we come freely, we come willingly, we come desirously. Isn't God good? Isn't grace amazing? Regeneration is like just putting the taste of that first pizza bite in your mouth ahead of time to have that aha moment. And ever since that time, I've been, I've been asking for pizza. I've been ordering pizza. I've been asking them to double up on the cheese. And when we went to Italy, and I'm sitting downtown and, and on the square in Florence, I'm ordering pizza. They got some of the best pizza that I can eat. No one's coercing me. No one's forcing me. I am salivating when I'm ordering it, and I delight to have it, and they bring it, and I eat it joyously and never turn back. And that is how the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit works in the heart of God's people. We become a different kind of person. There's a new life within us. The Holy Spirit has returned. And the fellowship with God has been restored in Christ. And when the Spirit of God breathes into us new life with His regenerating grace, we see for the first time why we would believe in Jesus. And the answer is, because He is. Is true. He is the truth. And we see why we would want him. And the answer is because we now see that he is good. In fact, we see he is the ultimate good. And then we see for the first time why we would consider him. And the answer is because now we see everything about him as beautiful and attractive and nothing to be repelled. He is so attractive. His love is so engaging. It is so inviting. It really draws me into His fellowship. The truth and the beauty and the goodness. We are so attracted by this trio of ultimate values of the beauty, truth, and goodness of life that Jesus becomes so compelling, His love so attractive, His truth so right, and His goodness so irresistible that we come to Him and we come freely and we come desiring Him and we come of our own free will. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will by no means, by no means cast out. Thank God for the flavor of cheese and pizza and for the recognition of that now. But thank God even more for the overcoming of our resistance and obstinance against Christ so that I would take an interest in my Creator and my God. He is irresistible for all those that the Spirit has regenerated. And we now see the truth. We now know the goodness, and we see the great beauty. As the Wesley appropriately wrote in that famous hymn that we all know, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold, I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Our gracious Father in heaven, what a wonderful thing, what a tremendous, amazing grace the gift that You have given us in Christ, when we have deserved it not, when we have trampled all of the gifts of God under our feet, when we have spurned You in our heart, when we have hated You in our minds, when we have suppressed the truth and have not been grateful to our Creator, and while we were sinners, in that terrible state, Christ loved us, and gave Himself and died upon the cross to save us from that terrible state. He rose again from the dead and the Spirit has given us life in applying that work of redemption to save us and to cry out, Abba, Father, and to know that we are undeserving of such. Not only have You saved us from our sins, You have elevated us to sit in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus and made us to even reign with Him as princes of the kingdom. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is high. We cannot attain it. Be glorified in our gratitude this morning as we give you our thanks for this undeserving, unmerited grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus and for making Yourself so irresistible. By removing the scales from our eyes that we can see beauty, truth, and goodness in the way that humans ought and should see. We are thankful we are new creatures in Christ. And we pray that you would lead us to be more thankful in all of our endeavors, all of our trials, all of the difficulties, knowing that you save us to the uttermost, And you do this for your name's sake. So Lord, may we remember that, that we would endure whatever trial you would have, whatever lot in life, whatever calling we are to pursue, we would do this for your name's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.